What's it like when one of your friends on death row is led away to be executed? You have a prepaid call from William A. Aguirre. An inmate at the California State Prison, San Quentin. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. I had to be a different complete guy, which is the guy who walked the walkways of San Quentin's death row and without a gang, without a, a group of people around me, it was just me. Soon after you went into to be on death row, and you didn't really understand the prison workout system so much. But then he said, we're going to do 75 sets of it. To me, that seems extreme. So I'm wondering if there's a danger of overtraining, wearing yourself out so that you're... <laughs> no, no, that's actually funny. That's not, and it's funny. I'll tell you why. Gonna, <laughs> that's a good one, Matt. No, I'll, I'll tell you why. Look, I wasn't Welcome to Death Row Diaries. I am Matt Ralston. And I'm William O'Gara. And today we're going to be talking about Jeffrey Dahmer, who everyone's heard of. A creepy serial killer guy who met a certain demise that uh, is the kind of thing that we talk about on this show, usually. And, and we'll get some insight from you onto how that occurred after we kind of break down what this guy's all about first we have a listener submitted question and this is from isaiah in denver colorado and he says i was listening to you guys's uh, episode about the prison stabbings and his question is he says hey guys how is it that you can't safety proof a cell at this point you know, or uh, I guess in the jail case, uh, the the common area or or whatever. But, you know, the point being, there's all these places to hide stuff. And he's just wondering, you know, could there not be a method to, I, I don't know, like baby proof the place or whatever. <laughs> That's actually pretty funny to baby proof the prison. Well, here's the problem with that. And that is that if you baby proof it, what, you make everything out of glass like you know the the x-men where you have a guy in a, in a chamber where only everything's made out of this, this kind of unbreakable glass or or shadow proof glass it's just impossible because if you, if you baby proof it or whatever there's no way to keep these guys in because then you'll have problems with escapes there's you know there has to be metal bunks or and the cost too. think about the cost of what this stuff but the bottom line is these criminals to the machine or to the enterprise or the industry are worth only what they can get back in return. They're not going to be spending millions of dollars on these cells to safety proof them. So get a guy to cut a blade out and kill somebody because, well, the convicts and prisoners are just not worth that much to them. So it's going to continue to happen. Look, they've done a lot of things. A lot of these county jails um, have glass doors, or it's really hard for people find material to make knives and you know, where to hide them. But look, if there's a will, there's a way. If you have 24 hours, seven days a week to think of new ways to get things done, you're going to find them. It's just impossible to stop it. So at some point, I think these administrations know this, and at some point, just say, hell. There's dangerous people in prison. Bad things are going to happen. Hey, we'll do the best we can. 
plan to stop it, but we're not going to lose any sleep over it. I think that's the attitude. I'm assuming, I'd never thought about it before, but in terms of like, there's laws about certain you know, accommodations that prisoners have to have. So, like, for example, they have to have beds, and then that bed probably has to contain some metal, right? Well, they can make them out of clay, I guess. There's just different things they can do, but, um, yeah, I, I don't know what else they can do. But yeah, you're right. There, there are certain elements that the prison has to provide, maybe showers, beds, um, you know, enough space to move. All these things considered, and if you put a place like that together, there's going to be metal. There's going to be things that people can cut and use weapons. Yeah. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Death Row Diaries. And if you're listening to the show on Apple Podcasts, or if you just Google Apple Podcasts and find the show, you can leave a review, which we do appreciate. And of course, Tell your friends. We appreciate you listening. All right, so Jeffrey Dahmer, I was telling you as we were talking before the show, I didn't do any research on this. And on the one hand, it's very convenient because I was kind of lazy. And on the other hand, um, I just kind of wanted to get the story from you because I know that you've kind of followed this one pretty closely. And it, it does tie into a lot of the things that we talk about, you know, once he is busted. So, where do we start? Well, let's start from the beginning. And, and I should say that I, the reason I followed this guy so carefully in the case is because he's kind of the the, uh, the prototype for me. He's the, the guy that shows, like BTK, that my theory that these guys are born this way. They're wired differently, and they just respond to situations differently than all people. Um, you know, there's a lot of, of experts, so-called experts, that always talk about that, you know, environment and the abuse to them made them become this particular person. And, yeah, in some ways that may, um, you know, move the needle over a bit. But these particular serial killers, serial killers in general, are born that way. And this is a theory that I have. I prove it time and time again, and I would know. But I live with serial killers. I watch serial killers every day. It isn't a four-hour process where I interview them and the guy tells me what he wants to tell me. I'm watching these guys 24/7 on these yards. I've interacted with them because I was I was assigned by the warden of San Quentin and the director of CDCR to be a care provider for elderly serial killers. So. My uh, expertise is from experience, from watching, rather than reading books and talking to a few guys for a few hours. So yeah, this guy here, the perfect guy to kind of back up my theory. So yeah, let's just jump into this guy. His name is Jeffrey um, Dahmer, of course. He was born May 21st, 1960. He was murdered on November 28th, 1994. He was 34 years old. He is known as the Milwaukee Cannibal, and the Milwaukee Monster. Pretty good names, huh, Matt? Yeah, yeah, they're pretty good. I don't know. I, I, I might be able to do better if I put some thought into it. So his family life is... He he doesn't have one of yeah, these crazy stories, does he? Or, no. or does he? No. 
Absolutely not. He's yeah, that's exactly correct. His look, he's got a, a mother and a father. They're not crackheads. They're not bank robbers. They're not criminals. His mother is a. Uh, yeah, she's got issues. Like everybody's got issues. His father's not the, the most caring guy in the world, but he's um, he's not beaten as a child. He's not sexually abused as a child. He has a pretty normal life. Um, he is the first of two sons. His mother Joyce and his father Lionel. Um, is, you know, he's a research chemist. He's in a, he's a very intelligent guy. His mother did have an attempt of suicide in her in her life. But there's nothing to suggest that they abused him. No, nowhere in his numerous interviews did he talk about being abused. I mean, of course, he could hide that. But from the outside looking in from the family, there doesn't seem to be a whole, whole lot there. He didn't go to foster care. None of he wasn't a little criminal. None of these things. So, yeah, pretty normal childhood. But it's very early on that we see it, 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 a change in him. It's not really a change. It's just an evolution of him. By four years old, I mean, let me repeat that, four, he's fascinated with dead animals. His father, who's a research chemist, believes he's interested in bones and kind of calls it, you know, as it is. Hey, my son's interested in bones. He's probably going to be a doctor. So... But very early on, he's calling these bones fiddlesticks. And he's looking for ways to figure out how the bones are connected. Now, in most cases, you would think that a child is just being very curious, that uh, maybe this could lead to him being a doctor, but that is not the case. This is just creepy stuff. You know, a four-year-old child already fascinated with dead animals. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, yeah. I mean... The dad seems either naive or he's trying to put a positive spin on it, you know, but that seems, I don't know, like maybe he was even in denial. (laughs) Yeah, no, completely. And by 1968, they move from their normal home and they go into a home that fits perfectly what he wants. It's an, an acre and a half of land in a woodland area. And by eight years old, by eight years of age, this guy's collecting animal remains. He has them all in this huge barn with formaldehyde. It reminds you of the, you know, the perfect freaking environment for a guy with these tendencies to grow in. You know, his, um, his father even asks him about the bones. And um, his first response is not a, is, well, look, I like him for this reason. He immediately wants to ask how to preserve them. Um, he wants to know how they make the person live. He wants to know what causes death. These are things that children normally don't ask. And then comes a real weird turn of events, and he's only 10 years of age. He decapitates a dog's head. He nails the body to a tree and then impales the skull or the head of the animal to the back of his home. Hey, what kid does this? Yeah, that's pretty extreme. And clearly at that point, I mean, if that happened these days, I'm hoping that they would have taken him in to see someone 
got some medication going or, or try to figure out what's going on. But yeah, this keeps with the history of this guy or, or what he goes on to do. You know, he's like, he's very brazen. He, he's kind of a hipster, you know, he, he likes to fake seizures and, and kind of draw attention to himself. And, and I don't know, he's kind of like, he's like a introverted extrovert or something. He's very gregarious, but he's also like kind of withdrawn. Um, cause like, yeah, doing something like that is very showy, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that's what I mean. This guy's wired different from the beginning. He's intelligent. He's polite, but he's kind of an underachiever as well. By age 13, he discovers or understands that he's also gay. And, he, you know, he, he says that, again, all, most of this stuff we're getting from him. There wasn't someone there watching what he was doing as a boy. We don't know what he was thinking. Most of this information comes from the killer himself. And I'm normally, when I hear that, there's always that part of me that's the skeptic, the skeptic. And I, you know, I, I kind of wonder what's his plan. Why is he telling people these things? And I think he wants to control the narrative. He wants people to know what he wants them to know rather than, you know, other things. So, again, all, all this stuff is controlled by him. You have 60 seconds remaining. But the fantasies are about dissection. And his fantasies of dissection now are crossing in into sex. So he's, he, he's blurring the line between killing and sex. He's 13 years old, ladies and gentlemen. 13. Hey, so did I understand you correctly? You're saying that he's kind of doing some revisionist history on this stuff later on, and is he using his homosexuality and obviously you know there's some repression going on is he using that as a kind of sympathy ploy no i don't think he is he's, he's obviously telling people after he's arrested some of the things that he's thinking and what he was going through and i i usually look at that with a fine magnifying glass to see what the truth really is in those things but you know he does admit that he's gay but what really tips me off immediately is that he immediately talks about fantasies at this age about deception, meaning killing and sex. It's, it's almost blurred. And he, we have an instance where he's 16 years old and he finds a particular male jogger to be attractive. He's just running by his house. And instead of like normal people, whether they're gay or not, stopping the guy and say, hey, how you doing? Maybe trying to start a conversation, maybe seeing if there's an attraction or something. He doesn't do any of that. He immediately understands, memorizes where this guy runs. He hides in the bushes with a baseball bat. And his motive and what he's going to do is that he's going to jump out, strike him in the head, knock him out, and then have sex with him. I mean, who does this at 16 or, or at any age for that matter? Instead of like normal people, hey, let's go get a drink somewhere, let's go to the movie, let's go whatever, come over to my house and watch a movie, he immediately, his, 
his motive or his, I mean, uh, his, uh, his course of action is to get a baseball bat away from him in the bushes. Does that make any sense at all to you? And the answer has to be no. So from very early age, this guy is already associating sex with violence or how to get sex or what he wants through violence. Yeah, and he knows what he wants. I mean, I don't think that that's a common inclination or thought to want to hit someone that you're attracted to with a baseball bat, but I would guess and like to hear your thoughts. I mean, however many people think about things like that and maybe would like to do it, I I think it's probably a, a minority that actually do it. And he's only 16. I mean, he's got a lot of courage for lack of a better word yeah you're absolutely right and, and that's the key here we're seeing this behavior from the age of four because at that age he's able to ask questions express interest in certain things so but from a very early age at four he's able to express he asks questions he shows curiosity that curiosity isn't about models or superman or batman it's about dead animals in dissection. He is highly evolved for a serial killer at that age. He's 16 years old and already hiding in bushes trying to assault people. Luckily for the jogger, he changed his plans that day and it never happened. But it doesn't take him long to act out that fantasy. And it happens just after high school graduation. He it's three weeks actually after graduation and he commits his first murder and it's purely by chance he sees a 19 year old hitchhiker named Stephen Hicks the guy is not wearing a shirt and Dahmer lures him to his home on the pretext of having a few beers once they get to the house and they drink listen to music this kid Stephen starts talking about girls like most kids do they're He's a straight kid, but he talks about girls and what he likes to do. At that point, Dahmer knows that there is no chance for a sexual relationship with this guy. And he immediately picks up a 10-pound dumbbell and cracks him over the head twice with it and then strangles it to death. I mean, think about this. Well, the guy's straight. He's not going to have sex with me. Oh, well, let's just kill him. Yeah, the guy didn't do anything wrong (laughs) and this is like man i wonder if this is kind of a pre-social media thing um because like i remember as a teenager i would also just like have a few beers with a completely random guy i'd never met before Uh, i don't even think that really happens as much anymore you know that's weird right yeah it is weird (laughs) like i had no cell phones you know yeah, that is that, that is disturbing in itself. Well, since when are you been having so how long have you been having these strange illusions, man? Maybe <laughs> we should turn the subject from 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 Dahmer and start talking about Matt Ralston. What really happened in those woods and in, in Alaska here? Hey, well, you know, you you, you jog around bare chested and and people invite you into their home. It's just it's just what happens. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, so yeah, I mean. It's, it's mind-boggling the stuff. I mean, the balls this guy has to do this kind of stuff to actually strike a person, you know, because 
He's not attracted to you. You're not attracted to him. It's just it, it mind-boggling. But, so get this. He strangles a guy to death because that's his thing, strangulation. This is what he likes to do. It's up close and personal. He strips the body naked, and then he masturbates over the corpse. And to make things worse, he just takes the body into the basement. He then decides to dissect the entire body. He cuts the arms off. He cuts the legs off. He flays the, the, the flesh from the bones. He then buries certain parts around his backyard. He then awaits. He waits a couple weeks. He then digs the body back up. He dissolves the flesh from the bones with acid, and he pulverizes the bone with a sledgehammer, and he scatters them around the family home. I mean, when he, at first you think, well, he's just trying to get rid of the, the evidence. Well, later we find out that it's a little more complicated than that. He's actually trying to keep the person with him. Um, serial killers keep trophies to remember the... Um, the events, they often have sexual fantasies and the a token they took from the victim is used as a focal point for that fantasy. With him, it's a little bit different. He's actually keeping the victim with him. It's a form of collecting someone. This kid's 18 years old and he's already killing him. Yeah, why is it so intricate and elaborate what he's doing? You know, I mean, his dad is a, a what a chemist. It, it it almost seems like he has like the a gene of like a a doctor, or, or you know, someone who's who's very diligent and and except it's just gone haywire or something. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. No, absolutely right. It's gone completely haywire. It's warped from the beginning. He is a bad seed. He is damaged from birth. And look, ladies and gentlemen, it doesn't matter as you suggested that, well, had you guys gotten medication, that would have probably delayed him from doing what he's doing. These guys are wired this way. These guys are going to kill no matter what you do short of killing them or performing a lobotomy on them. It's it just, that's, that's really what happens. It's, you know, and look, he has the normal steps in life that a father provides for a child and he completely throws them away. He enrolls in Ohio State University. Within three months, he fails out. Not because he's not intelligent, because he has no interest in that. He's drinking and it doesn't work out for him. He then enlists in the Army in 1979, and he's trained as a medical specialist. Again, not a dumb guy. In July of that year, he's deployed to West Germany, and he serves as a combat, uh, combat medic in the 2nd Battalion's 68th Armored Regiment, 8th Infantry Division. 
that was a mouthful. And look, he's over there in Germany. You think nothing's going on, but there is a lot of stuff going on that no one knows about. And people don't find this out till these last few years after his death. Um, by 1981, he's already deemed unsuitable for military service and he's discharged. What does he do? He goes to live with his grandmother, okay? This guy is not what you think he's thinking of when you think of serial killers as these intelligent, high-volume guys that, you know, have all this stuff going for him. This guy is living with his grandmother, and he picks up where he left off when it comes to killing. What no one knows, and people always wonder with this particular case, is because the first murder happens in 1978 when he's only 18 years old. The next reported murder that they attach to him is nearly 10 years later. And people are convinced that that's what he did. He just took a break. I disagree. He didn't take a break. The murders that he was caught for, he was caught for because the bodies, the heads were found and he gave information. Everything comes from him. That 10-year period or 9-year period that no one knows about that he was supposedly dormant, he was not dormant. I would stake everything on it. And the reason being is he chose not to tell anybody about these other murders he committed. Why? No one knows. I can't even tell you. Maybe they were embarrassing. Maybe he wasn't ready to tell. I don't know the exact reason. But he didn't stop killing. We find out later on that two of his army buddies, he raped them. He held them captive and he raped them. But a law enforcement from Germany, once he was caught, came to see him about five unsolved murders in Germany while he was there. Now, German police are probably not as competent as people in the United States, I would think. You don't know. But they don't spend as much time as people in the United States and law enforcement chasing serial killers. So they have less experience, therefore they probably don't have the kind of This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded to figure out what he did over there. However, it's always ultimately up to him. He chose not to talk about it. So, yeah, I mean, a lot of people like to talk about what these guys do when they're dormant. And I would, uh, with this guy, I want to bet you that he kept killing. They just never found the bodies. So if you plot it out, like basically everywhere he goes, there are these murders that he's not taking credit for, basically? Yeah. He just didn't take credit for them, which sometimes serial killers do. Again, we're talking about someone that's highly disturbed. He has his reasons for doing what he does. Yeah, he told everybody about the 17 that he did do. But there could have been 28. There could have been 30. German police fly out from Germany to talk about this guy about unsolved murders tells you a whole lot. That his own uh, army buddy are telling him, hey, look, he held me captive. He raped me. Says a lot. So he wasn't dormant. He was actually very active. He just chose not to talk about it. So let me call back, Matt. Sure. Yeah.
So what are your thoughts? What's your hunch on... Do you think he ever felt guilty? Did he try to stop? Because I'm noticing his alcoholism, which is pretty pronounced. You know, that could be a form of self-medication. On the other hand, he could really just enjoy getting drunk and killing people. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, look, he could just like drinking, um, as you said, but he likes what he's doing. Nobody uh, does what he has done or did without liking what you do. This guy liked killing and what he does, and I'll explain why. So, he's, look, by August 7, 1982, after living with his grandmother, he gets a job at a blood plasma center. I mean, think about that. You got a creepy serial killer working at a blood place, okay? In 1982, he's arrested at the Wisconsin State Fair for indecent exposure. Again, not that big of a deal. What is he doing? Don't know. In 1985, while he's supposed to be dormant, he gets a job at a chocolate factory. And his grandmother walks into his bedroom and finds a mannequin in a closet that he's using for sexual fantasies. Now, during this time, he's visiting, during this time, he's visiting gay bathhouses for sexual encounters. He is moving towards new territory. He is, look, he's a smart guy. He's hunting, but he's doing so in a manner which is convenient for him. Um, he is now practicing drugging men and see how the effects take place in people. He doesn't really stop having sexual intercourse with people. He realizes that it's very difficult to subdue grown men. Children are easier. So he's practicing drugging these guys. So he then sees an article about an 18-year-old man who's, who dies. And they have a funeral service for him. And this guy goes to the funeral, and then when everybody leaves, he starts digging the body up. He wants the body. And he's faced with this enormous job of digging a body out. He realizes it's harder than he thought he was, and he stops. But it's, it's a guy who has no type of fence around his emotions. He just, whatever he feels like doing, he does it. And I think it comes to a head with him where he perfects his technique. All of these things have been, look, the one in 18, obviously, it was just a spur of the moment thing. It was a, a coming of convenience or opportunity. The things in Germany, he was perfecting it. He was still doing what he was doing. He was still killing, but he wasn't perfecting it. So he wasn't proud of what he did. All this time, to 1987, he's perfect. He's killing, he's raping, but he's not. He doesn't feel that he is the artist that he wants to be until November 20th, 1987, where he meets Stephen Tommy at a bar. And Dahmer has rented the Ambassador Hotel a suite to have sex. Um, 
he brings this man to the house and they engage in intercourse and he says he falls asleep but in the morning when he wakes up this guy his chest is crushed in there's blood everywhere and obviously killed and strangled him at night so to avoid capture he happens to have a, a large enough suitcase to transport the body back to his grandmother's house. Now, think of this stop there for a minute. Who takes a suitcase to a hotel room where they're going to have hopefully some, you know, some, a fun night, but he has a suitcase large enough to transport a body? He planned this. He said he didn't. I disagree. He planned it. So once he gets the body to his mother's his grandmother's house, he then cuts the head off. He cuts the arms off. He cuts the legs off. He cuts the flesh from the bone. He crushes the bone just like he did when he was an eight-year boy with a sledgehammer until they're small enough to throw in the trash, all except the head, which he bleaches, he boils it clean, and then he uses it as a focus to masturbate. So as you ask, does he like this? Is he somehow regretful what he does, remorseful? Absolutely not. This is what this guy does because he enjoys it. No one cuts the head off of someone, the head off someone, and then uses it as a focal point for masturbation. Okay, just doesn't happen. Right. What is his personal affect? Do you think it seems like he's kind of a loner, yet he's. I guess he's not a bad-looking guy. He's kind of average-looking white guy. And, you know, he's able to get these guys to hang out with them. On the other hand, he's usually kind of, some of them maybe a sex worker, or he's a, he's at least kind of, like, enticing them with free drugs or booze or whatever, you know. But he's he is able to get people to hang out with them, but it seems like he probably doesn't have any friends. I'm assuming, like, you figure it out fairly quickly, right? Or, I don't know. Yeah, he's a loner. He doesn't have any friends, no intimate friends, no close friends. But he does, um, I guess, troll for sex workers. And that's most of these people that he has, that he kills. And by the way, he killed, he, he killed 17 boys and men. He is a, not only is he a serial killer, pedophile, necrophiliac, and about any other different things this guy is, but, yeah, he is basically going after people that he can lure to his home. He does so two months later. This time it's a 14-year-old Native American prostitute named James Duxator, or Daxeter, uh, which he lures to his home with the promise of paying him to pose nude. Of course, it's easy to get someone to your house when you're in that trade, and you... You lure them with money. Then he drugs the boy. This is his ammo. He drugs them to, to make them easier to handle. He has sex with them. And then he strangles them. But what, what, he, what, he, what he doesn't like is that the people move. When he's having sex with them, he wants them to be still. He doesn't want them to move. He likes them to be dead. That's actually what he likes. He doesn't like the move to interact with them. For him, the sexual object has to be that, an object. No personality, just a body. That's what he's looking for. 
from a very early age, we know he likes body. This is what he likes. And, yeah, he, he strangles this boy. He, again, cuts the head off, dismembers the body, boils the head. This is the thing. He likes to boil the head. He cleans it, and he keeps the head as a skeleton. Um, and, again, he masturbates. It's, again, not much later, and he's back at it again. Richard Guerrero takes him to the grandma's house. How creepy is that? He takes all these people to his grandma's house, and he kills them there. How dumb is this guy's grandmother not to know something's going on? Yeah, I was just going to say that. It's just, it's crazy. This guy, he strangles him with a leather strap. And then he performs sex, and oral sex, on the corpse. Again, he cuts the body up. He throws away most of the parts. Except the head. He keeps the head. He's collecting heads. It's like, it's almost like he watched Predator, and he keeps the skulls. And it just goes on and on. This guy, you know, he's arrested then for actually drugging and sexually assaulting a 13-year-old boy. And, uh, you know, this brings attention of the police to him. He's going through hearings. Um, the charges are, are lowered, but, he, you know, he has to do probation. He's got, uh, you know, work detail to do and stuff. But while he's doing this, while these hearings are taking place, he lures his fifth victim a guy named Anthony Sears. And this guy's an aspiring model, good-looking guy. He finds him at a gay bar. Um, but this guy just, he just kills this guy. He jerks him, strangles him to death, um, has sex with the body. He does his usual thing, dismembers the body, uh, preserves the head and the genitalia, and he stores it in acetone, and he keeps it in a wooden box. So all these murders he's committing, he's keeping... Not just tokens, you know, a piece of clothing, a driver's license, like most serial killers, a lock of hair. He's keeping the actual head, or he believes the soul is that. He's keeping the entire person with him because he doesn't want to lose these people. For him, it's all about keeping these people with him for eternity and controlling them. It's freaking nuts. Yeah, that's really dark and... A strange philosophy or or whatever it is uh so i mean if we zoomed out a little bit to me the way you're describing this he's this guy that's on the scene kind of hanging out in gay bars all these guys going missing or most of them are gay and you know he's now been arrested for deviant behavior and like from the way you're describing it, it's like he has like body parts kind of like piled up around his residence. And so I'm just wondering if law enforcement is kind of onto him. They, they must know that there is a serial killer at this point. Right. And it's really easy to look back and say, Oh, how obvious, but I'm, I'm just wondering if he's drawing, uh, any, any suspicions. He is not. And I'll tell you why. Yes, there is suspicion that he is a, he exposes himself to kids, he, he grabs a couple of kids, which is bad enough, he's a child molester, but he does have to register as a sex offender. But no one has any idea about these murders taking place because there are no bodies. These guys are mostly sex workers, they're very young, there are missing reports filed, of course, but no one has found a body, no one has found anything. This guy is completely 
completely under the radar. And it goes on, but most of his, uh, his murders are all the same. The next one, which is May in 1990, it's a guy named Raymond Smith, 32-year-old guy. And a lot of these guys are African-American, by the way. And I want you to keep that in mind because it does play a part later on in his life. So, again, he brings, this guy's a prostitute, brings him to his home, he strangles him. In this one, though, he buys himself a Polaroid camera and he begins to take photographs of the dead body in suggested positions. He then, again, dismembers the body, keeps the skull, but this one, he paints the skull and puts it inside of a filing cabinet in his home. So none of these bodies are popping up because he's dismembered them. He's, he's taking the flesh of them, he's cutting it up, he's putting it in acid. So you don't have bodies anywhere around, so no one knows that they exist. The following month, Edward Smith, same thing, severs head, has sex, takes photographs, puts a uh, head in a filing cabinet. Um, and look, and I'm quoting here, him here. This is Dahmer. This is what he said. It was my way of remembering their appearance, their physical beauty. And he's talking about the skull that he's keeping. Um, look, this guy is a predator. Uh, he, he doesn't want to stop because he really likes what he's doing. The next guy, Ernest Miller, basically same thing. And he continues on. David Thomas, a 22-year-old guy. So, yeah, uh, this guy now, he, he begins to hone his process. This last guy, Curtis um, Slaughter, who he picks up at a bus stop, and he lures him to his home for sex and pictures. He actually, when he, after he kills this guy, he now uses the, 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 the camera and he photographs the process of dismemberment, cutting off the head, the hands, the genitalia. He's photographing this process. This comes back to hunting. So it's, he's almost evolving in a way, but he's got what he likes. The end result is what he wants, which is the body parts surround him, the torso, the hands, the feet, genitalia, the heads are very important to him. So let me tell you what it is that he's doing. He's keeping not only these people with him, but these are his acquaintances. These are his friends. These are the people that he feels comfortable with because he shares a common bond with all of these people. He doesn't have friends like you and I have that he talks to. He talks to the body parts because he feels that there is truth in those body parts. There are no lies. There are no face masks. He's just the people that he likes. He's attracted to these people. So he remembers them as they were before he killed them. I know it's sick, it's twisted, but that's what he's thinking. So he's that insane, but he's able to outwardly appear to be a functional person? Yeah, and, and that happens a lot. Look, Every crazy person isn't a guy that runs around screaming that there's flies on him, there's maggots running around him. He's not, uh, you know, from Count Dracula, the, the guy who's his little, you know, stooge or whatever, just crazy guy doing exactly. This guy can function. He can. He can wear a mask when he needs to. But he's, he's not comfortable around normal people. And his, look, he's a sadistic guy. And what he does next really brings that to a focal point. So two months later, on April 7th, he 
lures a guy to the park, Earl Lindsay. He drugs him, and this time, he drills a hole into the guy's skull. Look, I'm not making this up. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. And he pours hydrochloric acid into it. The boy falls unconscious. But he wakes up and he's disoriented. He says he has a headache. And Dahmer is thinking that he can make this guy into basically a living zombie, a sex slave that won't talk and won't say anything. He can just have sex with the body. It doesn't move. It just sits there. It's almost like a, a person with a lobotomy. It doesn't work out that way at first. So he strangles this member, so cuts off the head. Same process. So here's where things get really weird. Neighbors start complaining about noises, foul smells, the sound of a chainsaw. Duh, right? He's cutting up people. And when the manager comes to the apartment and asks him what's going on, he tells them, well, look, you know, um, my refrigerator broke and the meat was rotten. That's what he was smelling. Um, also, my fish tank broke. And um, that's the odor you're smelling right now. But I'm fixing it to get cleaned up and no one pays it to be mine. This next victim really turns the tables on him. And you see just how much law enforcement doesn't pay attention to the obvious. So he picks up a 14-year-old young boy who's of from Laos. And strangely enough, that boy's younger brother was molested by Dahmer in 1988. So I don't know why this kid goes to Dahmer's apartment for pictures. Uh, but he, he drugs him. Dahmer performs oral sex on him. And when the boy is unconscious, Dahmer drills a hole in his skull and injects again hydrochloric acid into the frontal lobe and then leaves the boy in the body, he leaves the boy's body in the bedroom. And as he goes to the bedroom, he has another body of a dead 31-year-old Tony Hughes laying on the floor. So he's got two bodies right there, which he's killed within days, right there. The young boy isn't dead, and although he's knocked out, Dahmer decides to go to a local bar. He doesn't come back to the following morning. When he does, he finds the young 14-year-old boy naked, sitting on the curb, and three women are talking to him. Dahmer tries to grab the kid and take him to his apartment. The kid's fighting him. He begins to realize that these women have called 911, and within minutes, police show up. And the women are pointing that there is blood on his testicles and tripping from his ear and his rectum. And Dahmer comes up with a story that the guy is actually his 19-year-old lover, and he's been intoxicated, he's an alcoholic, and that he gets this way, he gets violent when he drinks a lot. And the police say, well, let's go to your apartment. They go to his apartment where Dahmer shows them pictures of the 14-year-old boy, who he says is his 19-year-old lover, and they're naked pictures. He says, you see, look, we, we play these games, it's just, you know, it's a gay thing, and He's my boyfriend. The cop looks around the place and notices nothing. 
And he tells the women to mind their own business, not to get involved. Of course, as soon as the cops leave, he kills the kids. He dismembers both him and the guy on the floor. And then he goes on a tear. So, June 30th, Matt Sherman, he kills the same thing. July 5th, Jeremiah Winberger kills him. Uh, July 15th, Oliver Lacey. July 19th, Joseph Branikoff. And then comes where this comes to an end. On July 21st, Dahmer, who is on a tear between June 30th and July 21, he's already killed five more people. He approaches three men with $100 and he asks them to come to his apartment to pose nude for him. Of the three guys, one guy, Tracy Edwards agrees to go. But he's immediately suspicious when he gets to the home and it smells foul. He can smell something. But in this moment where he's looking around, Dahmer puts a pair of handcuffs on him and kind of pulls a knife on him and tells him, I'm going to take these pictures of you. He's being very brash. He's just going to do what he does. The guy, Edwards, notices that on the television, The Exorcist 3 is played. There are nude posters on the walls. And in the corner, there's a 57-gallon drum in the corner. So this guy knows he's in danger. So he tells Dahmer, look, yeah, we'll take a picture. No problem. I have no problem. At which time, Dahmer puts his head against the guy's chest because he likes to listen to his heart beating. I mean, look how creepy this is, okay? This guy obviously doesn't know that this guy's a serial killer, but that he's putting his head to his chest, listening to his heartbeat, while he has a knife in his hand, is as scary as can be, right? Yeah, not to mention the house of horrors that he's got going on there. I mean, it's, uh, it's a frightening scene. Oh, brother. Oh, brother, you have no idea what's in this house. <laughs> so... This guy knows something's wrong. He feels it. He's in touch with a little primal instinct that you're talking about. And he plays it off. He tells Donald, look, yeah, yeah, hey, look, let's lay together. Let's, you know, let's, let's, um, let's talk. And he kind of plays Dahmer out of his own, uh, comfort zone. And in between, he says, hey, can I, can I use the bathroom? And Dahmer allows him to. Well, when he takes the handcuffs off this guy, this kid, this guy, punches Dahmer in the face as hard as he can and runs out of the house. As he's running out, he sees a police car and waves him down. When he tells him what happened, the police escort this guy back to the apartment, and Dahmer's as cool as a cucumber. Hey, uh, look, he's my lover. Uh, the guy's like, no, we're not. There's a knife right there. Uh, he tried to do this to me. He tells him what happened. And now the cops are getting suspicious. They start looking at the house. And the first thing they do is they go in the kitchen. They open the refrigerator. And there is a head of an African-American in the freezer. Okay? So you imagine what the cop is. He opens the freezer. It's a freaking head looking at you. And he falls backwards. He immediately tells his partner to place handcuffs on him. And they start looking to the apartment this guy just came out of, and there are four heads in the kitchen, a total of seven heads in the apartment. There are two human hearts, there's a torso, 
there's organs, two full skeletons, there's a pair of severed hands, there are two penises from aldehyde, there is a mummified scalp, and in that 57-gallon drug, there are three more torsos, and the police find 74 Polaroid pictures of the dismemberment of these men as the process was continuing. Of course, they arrest him, and that's where we come to almost a conclusion of Mr. Dahmer's story as a serial killer. Wow. So I'd imagine those cops have some PTSD regarding that situation. I mean, could you imagine finding oh. skulls in the, in the, it's a routine kind of thing, you know, and all of a sudden it's, uh, it's gotta be so surreal. Yeah. I mean, there's well, everything they found. It just seemed, it's a house of horrors. And this guy, I mean, look, Listen, this guy's a scumbag. He's a piece of garbage. He really is. He's killing kids. He's raping, pillaging. You know, we find him interesting because, for me, it's because I want to know why these guys do what they do. But you're absolutely right. This guy's a monster. This guy, those cops must have freaked out that they came upon us. Yeah. It's just, it's mind-boggling. It's kind of mind-boggling, the situation prior to this that the kid was was he 13 or 14 years old and to not kind of get an id or or whatever to figure out who he is i you know 14 year old kids don't look 19 the kids got like a hole in his head i mean man you see this a lot but that's that's pretty shoddy police work you know it doesn't uh, surprise me that the uh, Dahmer is getting away with all this stuff because I don't know I don't know what was going on there, but uh, he's not meeting you a have ton 60 of. Sixty seconds remaining. He's, he's not meeting a well, lot I of resistance. Has, you know? No, there isn't, and I think that's part of the reason why serial killers get away with what they get away with. No one will. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. Nobody really believes this could be happening to them right that moment and that they're dealing with a serial killer. That's the furthest thing from your mind. But when he says that he's gay, that he's a sex worker, immediately blinders come on. The police are not that interested in those type of people. That's been a, a, a theme that we've talked about many times, man. Okay, so in part two of this two-part episode, we're going to wrap up what happens to Dahmer when he is sentenced to prison. I'm going to go out on a limb and say he's going to have a difficult time uh, with some of these convicts. Um, but yeah, man, I don't know. It just It's a creepy story. Uh, everyone's heard of Jeffrey Dahmer, but I didn't know some of these details. And, you know, I, I would keep going back when I think about, you know, I see some homeless person that's, harassing someone or you know and it's like i think we all know that certain people like rich businessmen are capable of being sociopaths i think we all know that and for some reason people don't want to admit at least i've found that you can be a sociopath like that and simultaneously have a mental illness i think there's people that have both and I don't like them any more than I like the uh, sociopathic businessman. 
And um, I think that's what's going on here. You're absolutely right. They come in all shapes and sizes. You can have a businessman who's a killer. You can have a you know, homeless person who's a killer and has mental issues. It just depends on the degree, how functional they are, and what their purpose is. You know, these guys are like like Swiss army knives. They have different dual purposes. Dahmer lived a normal life in terms of how people saw him. He was a president of a corporation, I think. But he had, you know, jobs here. He did that. He got along. He had an apartment. But he also murdered a bunch of children and men. Um, yeah, so it's hard to tell. You can never tell who these guys are until you look at them in the eyes of a person with the kind of experience that... Well, very few of us have had the opportunity to have to really see who's behind that mask. In Dahmer's case, unfortunately for those the people that died after uh, the police had an encounter with him, um, they just didn't know what they were looking for. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm curious to find out what happens next time, because I'm imagining the fact that Dahmer became very famous uh, for this did not help his case. I mean, I I think you probably remember, but I, I mean, I knew who Jeffrey Dahmer was as a, like a teenage kid, you know, he was like a, a famous guy, like the go-to reference for creepy serial killer guy. And I'm imagining that that's, that's not going to be beneficial to him when he's locked up. No, absolutely not. As I've mentioned before, serial killers are hunted in prison. Convicts want to do one thing to them, and that is exterminate them. We'll be back next time with part two. We appreciate you listening. I've been Matt Ralston. And I'm William Nagura. Be aware of your surroundings. Your life could depend on it.